We come this morning to our sermon passage, um, continuing on in the Gospel of John. And this morning we're in John 13, verses 21 through 38. <clears throat> this is right after Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples. It's a Passover dinner, and this uh, dramatic thing has happened that we've talked about the last two weeks. So this is just after that. John 13, verses 21 through 38. If you have your Bibles turned there, it's printed for you in your bulletin. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of, those, which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, that's John, by the way, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge over the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will surely glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, this dramatic scene. This dramatic scene of grief for Jesus as he has come face to face with the betrayal of his friend. The betrayals of his friends. I pray as we Look into this passage that you were moved by your spirit. Show us the glory of Jesus. Cause us to love him all the more. Open the eyes of our heart to see him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When's the last time you met somebody named Judas? Have you ever met somebody named Judas? Chances are no. I looked it up. There's only been 481 boys named Judas in the last 200 years in the United States. Incredibly rare thing. Incredibly rare. Only 481 in the last 200 years. But I wonder why. Judas is a fine name. It's, a, it's the Greek version of Judah, the tribe that Je of Israel that Jesus was from. It's the Greek version of that. It means God hears me. It's a great name on paper. So why aren't more little boys named Judas? Well, it's because when I say Judas, what do you think? You think betrayal. You think of all people, betrayer. It's like if you ask somebody in America to name their kid Benedict 
anything about revolutionary history. Nobody's naming their kid Benedict anymore over here, even though it's still a very popular name in England, Benedict Cumberbatch. But that's why people are not naming their kids Judas. But what about the name Peter? What about the name Peter? I'm guessing that you know at least three or four Peters in your life that you've met. More boys are named Peter in two months than have been named Judas in 200 years. I would that up to And it's a popular name. I mean, some of my favorite people are named Peter. And yet, if you read through, and, and I need to point out that the reason people aren't named Judas and the reason more people are named Peter is because of Scripture. These are scriptural names. And people aren't named Judas because people see passages like this where someone's named Judas is betraying Jesus and they're like, I'm not sad with my kid for that. No matter what this name means on paper. But they name kids Peter, the fast It's very popular. I want to point something out that maybe you haven't thought about before. That this scene in Scripture isn't just the scene of one betrayer in Jesus. There are two betrayers of Jesus in this passage. If you read through the Gospels, you'll, not, you'll find that it's not as simple as Judas betrayed Jesus, Peter did. Because in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, both Peter and Judas made conscious, deliberate decisions to betray Jesus and cut ties with him. Both of them made the choice in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life to say, whatever he's doing is not me. It's not what I'm about. So this passage isn't as simple as be like Peter, don't be like Judas. But I want to talk this morning about what this passage is really about. A love beyond betrayal. A love that we can find that is beyond the betrayal of our world. And so I broke it up to a couple different sections. The first one is this, the betrayers of Jesus. Again, the issue is not that Judas betrayed Jesus and Peter didn't. They both did. And their betrayals are different in a lot of ways. If you look through uh, the Gospel of John, the betrayal of Judas, it built over time. In fact, the first time it's mentioned is John chapter 6, which was a full year before this passage here. And so uh, Judas' discontent with Jesus had been growing for at least a year. Um, and it seemed to happen in stages. He seemed kind of unsure, even as he was approaching the religious leaders. He had to go talk to them a couple of times. They had to make the, uh, the arrangement for how much money. But even then, he didn't tell them where Jesus was. He was like, well, I'll tell you later where Jesus is. So it happened in stages. Judas seemed almost a little unsure along the way until right here in this passage. When he goes out, or when he takes the bread from Jesus, as it says in verse 27, Satan entered into him. Now, the picture there is not like the exorcist or our Hollywood ideas of like possession by the devil. That's creation of Hollywood in the 70s. Um, the picture here is that Judas' heart has darkened so much that he has handed over entirely to the purposes of evil. He's not back and forth anymore. He's made this decision, and he, his, his eyes are blinded, and he goes to the tragedy. But think about Peter's betrayal. It did not spring up over time. We never see Peter having these moments where he's unsure. In fact, Peter, more often than not, is ready to storm whoever is in front of him. He's ready to be on the front lines. If there's, a, if there's an army being built, I want to be the first one up there. Peter's betrayal, if you keep reading, it 
sprang from a moment, an impulse. When Jesus is arrested later on in John chapter 18, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and Peter responds by pulling his sword out to defend Jesus. He cuts off the ear of one of these soldiers. Now, he obviously couldn't have been good with a sword. He just clipped the guy's ear. But Peter is willing to fumble and sacrifice right there. He's staring at a bunch of soldiers that are better armed than him, and he's thinking, this is it. I'm going to defend my Jesus. But Jesus rebukes him. Jesus says, this is not what my kingdom is about. Put your sword away. People who live by the sword die by the sword. Put them away. And it seems like Peter is confused and angry and hurt by that. And not too long after, maybe an hour or two, he's denying that he even knew who Jesus was. And Peter doesn't just deny Jesus one time. He does it three times. In one night. So that's how the betrayals are different. Judas builds over time. Peter seems to spring from this impulse of, of, of anger and frustration and confusion. But there are ways that they're similar. They're similar betrayals in that they're both devastating and they're both real. They both cause deep grief to Jesus because it's the betrayal of his closest friends, one handing him over to be arrested and the other one turning his back on Jesus in the time of his greatest suffering. And they both led to intense sorrow in the betrayers. Judas and Peter made these decisions to turn their back on Jesus. But we see in both of them, what sprang out of that was this intense grief and sorrow and guilt over what they had done. And this is in fact the most important way that they're different. It's the difference of their guilt. It's the difference of their sorrow after the fact. Because the sorrow of Judas is one that ended in tragedy. We read 2 Corinthians 7 a moment ago. Judas is the embodiment of worldly sorrow that leads to death. After he realizes it's a shock to his system, he realizes what he's done in betraying Jesus, he ends his life at his own hand. He's unable to imagine himself as anything other than a betrayer. He's now saddled with this name Judas that means betrayer. And he's, un he's unable to imagine that anything else can ever be different. And as I've quoted before the, from the Croatian theologian Miroslav Wolf, he said this, the first tragedy is sin in the case of Judas. The first tragedy is that Judas sinned, that he betrayed Jesus. The second tragedy is not believing in forgiveness, the second is worse, worse than the first. Judas finds himself in, in severe guilt and sorrow over what he's done, but that sorrow leads to death because he cannot imagine that there's a pathway out of his guilt. But what about Peter? What about his sorrow? Peter also betrays Jesus numerous times. But that's not the end of his story because his ears are open to hear the grace of Jesus that runs behind and chases behind our failures to be right there. This is the other type of sorrow that's talked about in 2 Corinthians 7. Sorrow that, what's it say, leads to repentance and leaves no regret. It's sorrow for sin 
that does not stay stuck in guilt. It traces the line of that sorrow and that guilt to find Jesus and allow him to take away that guilt and leave us with no regret. This is shock. No regret. This is God's intention for us, even when we have betrayed very much on purpose. That whatever guilt springs up within us, that we feel the real guilt that we have, that we bring it to Jesus and allow him to take it from us and live lives of no regret. Friends, we are betrayers of God. It's why we have a confession of sin every week in our, in our service. Because in little, tiny ways, and sometimes very big ways, we have turned our back on God during the week. We've made decisions to act in selfishness, to speak in selfishness. We've made conscious decisions to not do good things. We've made conscious decisions to hurt others or disregard even ourselves. And that's what sin is. It's betrayal of who God is. But the good news of this passage is that beyond even your deepest betrayals, those big sins, your on-purpose failures, God has opened a way for you to find grace beyond that guilt. To not stay in guilt, but to use your guilt, your feelings of sorrow after the fact, as a stepping stone to find Jesus. And I want to invite you this morning because Jesus invites you to not remain in sorrow about your sin. A holy person is not someone that beats themselves up constantly because of their failures. This is what Scripture is telling us right here. Someone who comes to Jesus, who sees the beauty of who, who he is, is someone who is having their sin not just forgiven in an abstract kind of way, but someone who is being led by God into a life that lives with no regret, as it says. Don't remain in your sorrow. Now, you're going to have feelings of guilt when you mess up. It's natural. You're going to have feelings of sorrow that you've not done the right thing or you've left the right thing undone. <laughs> but don't remain there. To remain there is to step into what Judas did, to find a worldly sorrow that leads just to death. But let's use our guilt as a step along the path to find the magnitude of God's grace in Jesus Jesus, who has cut a pathway through guilt for us to turn to him and to step into lives that are not drowning in regret. God's purpose for you and for me is not to live lives that are drowning in guilt and regret. And how can I say this because of what we see in this passage? Jesus' response to betrayal. Because we see Jesus' response to betrayal here. Jesus walked into every bit of this with eyes wide open. He knew it was happening. He watched it happen in front of his eyes. I mentioned that uh, John 6, you know, it's a full year before this passage. It's the first time Jesus mentions that one of them is at odds with him. He's seen this develop in front of his eyes. And that's beyond the knowledge he would have as the Son of God <laughs> of what's happening in front of him. And the betrayals that he faced did not happen to him, at least not in the same way that things happened to us. Jesus was not unaware. He stepped directly into this, knowing he was facing the betrayal of a friend that was selling him out and a friend that would shrink away in fear. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was glad to be walking into this. You may have noticed as soon as this passage opens in verse 21 that Jesus is troubled 
in spirit. Troubled in spirit. Now that's too soft of a translation of that word. It means troubled, but it also means um, deeply grieved. It's the same uh, it's the same word that describes, there's another scene in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark when the disciples are in a boat with Jesus on a lake and a storm comes up. And Jesus is asleep. And they think that they're about to die. The word that Mark uses to describe their feeling as they are about to die is the same word that John uses to describe Jesus' trouble in his spirit. It's almost terrible. And there's three times that the Gospel of John says that Jesus was troubled in this way. The, one, the first one was when he saw the weeping of his friend and wept with her. John chapter 11, Lazarus had died and he sees Mary and Martha and his women that he adores and they're weeping because their brother is dead. And Jesus weeps with them, he's troubled and weeps with them. The, the second time it mentions him being troubled in this way is when he realized that the hour of his crucifixion had arrived. That's John chapter 12, we talked about it a few weeks ago. And the third time is right here, when he anticipates the betrayal of his close friend. And friends, this strikes me as strange, because I, I must have some residual muscle memory of ideas of who Jesus is, that I think on his time on earth, he just kind of floated through the world, kind of unbothered. You know, he kind of quietly spoke, and he just walked through, and it was Jesus just serenely being here, Unbothered by, the, 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 untouched by the things that so often bother us, like our emotions are too much for the Son of God to experience. And, you know, He's divine after all. And if you stop and think about it, would we ever dare think of God crying? Would we ever dare think of God in this deep grief? But when you see this in Scripture, Jesus voluntarily walking into being troubled into the same kind of stuff that guts our hearts. We're invited to see the depths to which God will go to win us to himself. There's a 5th century pastor named Augustine, and he wrote about this very passage where he was asking the question, how in the world can we deal with this paradox, this idea that Jesus is the Son of God, divine, and yet at the same time troubled in spirit at the betrayal of his friend? And Augustine said this, when the great one, when the strong one, the sure one, the unconquered one, is troubled, we must not be fearful for him as if he was failing. He is not perishing, but he is seeking us. Jesus walking into trouble is him seeking us. When he is troubled, who wouldn't have been troubled had he not willed it? He is comforting one who is troubled and does not will it. Jesus walks into this betrayal, and all that will come after it voluntarily, he is doing it, seeking us out. Because he knows that we live in worlds where we are gutted by betrayal. Betrayal that we've done, betrayal that has happened to us. As we face betrayal in our lives, and it maybe isn't our you know, best friend handing us over to the authorities and have us arrested. That probably is not going to happen. But it's impossible to live in this world of broken relationships and not face betrayal. You know, from the middle school cafeteria to the the, the drama of a nursing home and everywhere in between, we live in broken relationships that are so often characterized by betrayal. And not just us facing betrayal or experiencing us experiencing it, it's, it's when we betray others as well. 
Because all of us have done that. I mentioned that a minute ago. And some of us, it's going to be more obvious than others. Some of them are more dramatic betrayals. But if we start thinking through, we'll see it color our entire experience of living in this world. But what Jesus has in the faces of the betrayal of this world is not this standoffish scoffing at the reality of it. He enters into it because it is a power that must be destroyed if we are going to receive what he has for us. It is a darkness that his light must enter because it's a darkness that holds us bound. In fact, verse 30 points out for the first time, the Gospel of John is constantly talking about light and darkness, light and darkness. Jesus is the light of the world coming into the darkness of our world. The darkness does not understand and cannot overcome Jesus. But notice what it says in verse 30. As Judas is going out, it's the first time John has noted anything like this. He says it was night. This is the dramatic moment in the movie when it seems like the darkness has won. Because this person that has walked with Jesus for three years has turned his back on him. And it's like the, the, the door has closed on, a, on any possible route other than the crucifixion. It was not. It was not. This is the moment when the darkness of all the moments of Jesus' life seems to have it up for him. That he walks into this again knowing every bit of what this means and he does it because he is carving a pathway beyond betrayal. He is carving a pathway beyond our betrayal, beyond our sin, to find for us life. He is carving a pathway for us to walk into the love of God that is not founded on good deeds or forfeited by failures. He knows he is walking into something that we could not face and not be swallowed up in the process. And so he walks into this pathway and as he talks about it, he's walking into it alone. Peter, you're not following me into this. I think part of that is, Peter, you would be swallowed up if you realize the, the depth and magnitude of the truth that exists in this world. But Jesus walks into all of this because he knows that his crucifixion will be the thing that shatters the power of sin and the power of betrayal. That he will destroy the condemnation that sin brings so that we can come to him like Peter does in our betrayal and find in him a God who takes our betrayal from us and offers to us a life beyond regret. A life in a community defined by what he calls new command in verse 34. And that's my uh, last section here, new command for a new community. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the decisive events of human history. The cross that is God's decisive no to sin's power. The tomb where sin's power is laid to rest and the tomb that becomes the womb of God's new creation. Jesus knows he's stepping into darkness, but he also knows this. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that for him and for all who trust in God, death always leads to resurrection. It has to. Shame always gives way to vindication for those who trust in God. It has to. And he knows that he is breaking the cycle of betrayal and sorrow and shame. And what lays on the other end of it is love. And so because he knows that right now, this moment, this night that has descended, 
this betrayal that he has faced in Judas and will face in Peter, he knows that this is not the end. And so to his gathered disciples, he gives a what he calls a new command, this foundational principle for his kingdom in verse 34. I'll read it again. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love them. Now, these words aren't new. If you look through the Old Testament, for instance, you're going to see calls for people to love, to love one another. It's all over the place, in fact. But these words that Jesus speaks are new in this sense. For the first time, the full reality of the love of God that we are meant to receive and walk in is seen. Jesus is the clearest expression, the clearest manifestation of the love of God for us that we are meant to live with Him in common. Because, guys, we can talk about love all day. If you go through our art and listen to our songs on the radio, the main theme of probably 60% of our songs are about love in one way or another. Paintings are about love. Movies, about love. And that's true of all of our religions. You cannot go to a world religion that exists and not find them talking about love. But where else in all the world will you find a religion, a person that doesn't just tell you to love, but shows it. Jesus doesn't just say love one another. If he said that, then he'd be no different than every religious leader that's ever existed. He doesn't just say love one another. Because God never just commands us. He never just tells us something to do. He always acts first. And then he invites us to stare into the beauty of who he is and find our hearts taken and then follow him in. And this is how our broken world will know that something else has happened here. Because springing from the inexhaustible love for us that we did not earn and cannot lose, we learn to love one another. God's command here through Jesus to love one another is not just meant to inspire us and to go out on our good motives and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it this time. I'm not betraying nobody. I'm going to love. No. If it's our own good intentions, then we will not get past the sidewalk right here this afternoon. But if we are relying on the springboard of the foundation firm foundation, the love of God and Christ, this new way is possible. We can love one another imperfectly, but we can walk in it because we know we're not trying to prove anything to anybody. We aren't trying to earn anything. This is what we're called into, to be a community defined by love in every way. And it will not be easy to keep this community on track in this world on this because there will be temptations to go after different things. I think we can all start listening to the tragedy of churches that have traded the love of God and Jesus and the radical uh, good news of the gospel for other things and the effects of that. Because we're going to be tempted to chase after power, thinking that if we can grab control, then just arrange things just right and everything will be okay. There's going to be t uh, temptations for us to join ourselves to the politics of being conservative or being progressive as if those words mean anything at all. There will be the temptation to chase after comfort or growth or wealth or whatever it may be. But Jesus says it here, and he says it plainly, that the, the way, the way that this broken world, defined by betrayal, will know that we are his and that something else is happening that he is doing is that 
we love one another. Love that humbles itself before others. Love that sacrifices. Love that sees another and chooses to take that person's joys and sorrows on their shoulders. Love that is shown by Jesus and worked by Jesus within us. God is calling us to sacrificial lives. He is. God is calling us to love that is inconvenient and love that's going to be time-consuming, love that's going to seem foolish sometimes, love that's going to feel very strange here sometimes. And the only way that's going to happen is if we realize the depth of God's love for us and lean on that as our motivation and as our, our nourishment and way to thrive. Because if we look anywhere else, we'll run out of gas. If you're here this morning in close and you are in deep sorrow over your sin, the invitation in this passage is to not remain in that sorrow. It is not God's intention for you to live in this spiral of guilt. It's not. Step through that sorrow and step through that guilt to find the face of Jesus and let him lead you by his grace beyond regret. And friends, let's walk into this community defined by love together. Jesus has won us to himself, and part of that is him joining us to one another. So let's get serious about this, because he is serious about it, and because he will empower us to do it. Let's love as he's loved. So that this broken world that is stuck in cycles of sin, betrayal, and shame can believe that Jesus is broken through for real. That's Father, I thank you that in the, the face of this this world defined by betrayal and guilt that you and Jesus have charted a pathway out. That in his crucifixion, that is your decisive no to the power of sin and betrayal in this world, and that in his resurrection, the bursting forth that turned that tomb into the, the beginning of a new creation, that you have uh, made a different way. And that you are leading us now by your spirit in your grace into lives that are not consumed with sorrow and guilt, but lives that are lived with no regret, that can step forth into flourishing and thriving. Bind us together with one another in friendship, to bind us together in that depth of love in Christ, so that the watching world will know something else has happened. It has to have. We have no other explanation for this. They love one another. Make that true of us. Grab this in the name of Jesus.